Hello, I'm Vas Christodoulou, and this is the How To Academy podcast. After a year when most of us have spent more time alone than we would like, living indoors inside our own heads for months on end, this week's show explores how we can fully harness the power of our own inner voice. It's the theme of University of Michigan psychology professor Ethan Cross's new book, Chatter. Matthew Stadlin joined him to find out more. Hello and a very warm welcome to you, wherever you are. My name is Matt Stadlin and I'm absolutely delighted to introduce to you Professor Ethan Cross of the University of Michigan, where he's a professor of psychology and he is also part of the Russell School of Business. A very, very warm welcome to you, Ethan. Thanks for having me. Now, in the book, you make it quite clear that the, our inner voice is something that we all have and is something that is necessary and can, by and large, be a force for the good. You use it as an analogy, actually, pain. I mean, we need to experience pain. Those very few people who are unfortunate to be born with conditions that mean they can't feel pain are in serious trouble. So the inner voice is important. It can act as a, a, a warning signal, amongst other things. But when it gets out of control, you start to call it chatter. Try to describe to us what the difference between an inner voice working well is and when it becomes chatter that can interfere with the way we run our daily lives. So the inner voice is a, you know, I'll use the corny phrase, but it's a superpower. It is a tool, our ability to use language, to silently verbalize our lives can be incredibly powerful. It helps us problem solve, plan, create, right? I think about uh, a presentation I have to give. I'm simulating what I'm going to say. I'm anticipating what the journalist is going to ask me, the really tough questions, and then I'm responding. And I'm back, like, that's an amazing tool, this ability to simulate and plan. And I would not want to live life without. In fact, I tell a story in the book about a neuroanatomist who had a stroke and lost her ability to talk to herself. And she didn't quite find it as euphoric as she thought it would have been at the outset. So it's an amazing tool. Even when the things we say to ourselves are are negative, that also isn't a bad thing. There's a large movement nowadays to want to rid ourselves of negativity and just live joyfully positive lives. I realize I may be talking about an American stereotype, maybe more than a, than a British one. Is that, is that fair? Or is this penetrating oh, into a, British a, culture too? A degree of, of, of positive thinking emphasis in this country as well, although probably a bit of a backlash as well. Right. So I don't think that that is either an attainable goal, it's not realistic, nor is it one that I would endorse for others. My ability to experience a small jolt of anxiety or anger or sadness these are useful experiences. They motivate me to behave in particular ways. When I have a jolt of anxiety knowing I'm going to do a performance in a week, that's good. It tells me, all right, let's get down to business. Let's, let's make sure you're prepared. You're not just going to wing it and so forth. We wouldn't want to rid ourselves of the ex- ability to experience negative emotion. So what's harmful? What is chatter? Chatter is when we zoom in on a problem to, to use this amazing tool, our, our ability to talk to ourselves, but we end up spinning. 
we narrowly focus on the problem and we start ruminating and worrying and catastrophizing. So we're not, we're not using the mind constructively anymore. Instead, we feel stuck. And that can lead to a host of negative consequences. It can undermine our, our decision-making and performance. It can create friction in our social relationships and it, it can really damage our physical health. And so, so that's the harmful side of, of introspection, if you will. And it's what I've spent my career trying to, to figure out how to minimize. In the final chapter of the book, you reference a question by one of your former students called Ariel. She asked you a question in the final day of a, of a seminar that you were teaching. And it really struck you and it stuck with you and was part of the reason, I think, why you wrote the book. And you diverted the attention in true professor's style. You, you, you basically farmed the question out to the other students. What did you think about that? A slick move or predictable? Yeah, I was, yeah, I was, I was a bit disappointed that you did that. And, and you I, was, I was too. I spent four years compensating by writing the book. So, you know. Well, I, was gonna, I was hoping as I read that passage that you were going to reveal that at the end of the, the session that you came up with your definitive answer. But instead, the answer comes in the form of the book. And you hope that Ariel has read the book. Maybe she's watching this evening. But just tell us why that question, what that question was and why it resonated with you. Right. So the story is I was teaching a class, a seminar on the science of self-control. So it's science's greatest hits when it comes to understanding how we can manage our emotions and our lives. And I taught this class several times. And the final assignment was always, all right, we spent the whole uh, semester with me asking you questions. Now you come to class ask me whatever you want about science, not other things. And what happens when you teach a class a few times is you, you, you come to expect, you, you know what questions you're gonna get because the same questions tend to occur. And so this last time I taught the class, when Ariel raised her hand, she raised her hand, she looked angry. I, I didn't realize I had offended her in any way up until that point in the semester. And then she just lays into me and says, why are we learning about this now? We spent the past you know, uh, learning all these tools. We've been learning the whole semester about these tools that can help us, help us perform better, feel better, better relationships. Why didn't anyone teach us about this earlier in life when it could have made a difference when we were in middle school or high school? We're graduating now. It's over. And so, so I didn't have a good answer to her. And, you know, as, as the father of two children, it did make me think in that moment, you know, why aren't we teaching people about what we know about the mind and how it works. We teach people about, like, how do we decide what to teach people about in school? I spent a lot of time in high school learning about the digestive system and the intricacies of peristalsis, how food gets from here down to the other, I'll, we'll keep it clean, the other hole, right? You know, does that, does that information really come in handy in life for me? No. But the mind, we've learned a lot about the science of the mind. So why aren't we teaching about it? So that, that was what I started thinking about and it really consumed me for a while. So let's get into the meat of it in just a moment. But I think it's important to point out, as you do as well, that we're only beginning to understand the extent to which strategies for controlling chatter work differently for different people in different circumstances. So there isn't perhaps a one-size-fits-all. No, I think fat. Let me let me emphasize with big asterisks that are flashing right now. There are no single solutions. There are no magic pills. I feel confident in that. Instead, what I think science has done reasonably well up until this point is identified different, different tools that exist. 
But the challenge we face in science, and I think the challenge that people who are here who I unfortunately can't see, and readers of the book, the challenge that you face is figuring out how the different tools that exist, how do they work for you in different situations? And it's likely that different combinations of tools are going to be effective in different situations. So let's get into some of the tools, because that's what people are here for. They want to like, this is, there's an element of self-help to all this, of course there is. And with that caveat in mind, but, but just repeat and, and expand before we do that on why it is sometimes talking to ourselves, as we all do, can backfire. I mean, you gave the example of you pacing up and down the living room. But I mean, how much of our lives do you think we do spend in negative, expressing ourselves with our inner voice in a negative way? So in sort of chatter terms, how big a problem is this for us in society? And, and, and why is it that it's so harmful? So I think it's a huge problem. Uh, at one point, I think I titled the, the chapter where I talk about the dark side of the universe, in fact, as the big problem. But for good, for good reason, I think we went with a better, a better chapter title. Uh, so where to start? So first of all, there's, of course, variability in, in every person, the degree to which they're consumed with chatter on any given day over the course of, of their lives. I think we all experience it at times. Some people are all chatter. I mean, I, I've spoken to people who are like, that's my mind. Chatter, 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 chatter. That's it. It's, and, and others are, 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 are less affected by it. So that's something to be aware of. But in terms of how it impacts us negatively, I like to break it down into there are three domains that it impacts us. First, it can impact our ability to, to think well and perform well at work, at school, at sports. When we're experienced, we, we all know, I think, that we have a limited amount of attention that we could focus on something at any given time, right? You can only focus so much without losing that ability to carefully scrutinize information. When chatter is taking hold of you, it's consuming the mental resources we have for focusing our attention. So it's sopping it all up and it doesn't leave much attention left over to do what we're trying to do, read the paper, practice the speech. I think that uh, the real world example that often hits home with people is, have you ever had the experience of reading, reading a chapter in a book or a few pages? You're, you're confident you've read all the pages, but you get to the end and you don't remember a damn thing you've read because your mind was somewhere else. And what you're describing here is, is actually very mappable onto the experience of someone who, who suffers from acute anxiety. If you're suffering from profoundly problematic ruminations, to use the word you used earlier, if you're suffering from acute or chronic anxiety, you can read a whole page of a book sometimes. And I really talk about my own experience. <laughs> and it just doesn't go in. Similarly, 50% of the stuff that people are talking to you about in your day-to-day -day life might just go straight over your head. That's right. I mean, and... That's when it gets extreme. The, well, but I would actually push back and say it also characterizes a lot of daily life for many people who aren't suffering from clinical levels of anxiety. This is life. This is part of how people work. We have a tendency where we can get sucked into chatter at times, and that doesn't make you pathological necessarily or abnormal or whatever the descriptors are that are commonly used. I mean, you know, there'll be moments when I'm really struggling with a difficult interpersonal situation at work. There's a problematic colleague, let's say, um, that's giving me trouble. I'm at the dinner table. My kids, who I love, 
All I want to hear every day, I live for hearing about what my kids do at school. And my youngest daughter's telling me with glee about what she learned. And she's talking, talking, talking. I didn't hear a thing because I was thinking somewhere else. So I think it is actually quite prevalent. And as, as we're discussing, look, if we're not able to focus, then it doesn't matter if it's work, if it's school, if it's playing ball, that's a serious, serious problem because our ability to think and perform is vital to our ability to succeed in this world. So that's the first way that chatter gets us. The second way is it can, it can influence our relationships. And, and there are a, a couple of different ways that it can do so. And social media, of course, is complicating all of this in ways that maybe we'll get to, maybe we won't. I talk a little bit about social media and chatter in the book. We well, actually use social media as an example sometimes of, of, of a way that can be beneficial to counteract chatter. Absolutely. Social media is not good or bad. It, it, it depends on how you engage it and it, it can lead us astray or help. But in terms of just run of the mill, old school social relationships, pre-social media, one of the things that happens when people are experiencing chatter is they talk about it. They're intensely motivated to talk about it with other people and to get help. And they keep talking about it if they don't solve the problem that's, that's fueling the chatter. And what that can end up doing is creating social friction, even amongst our most well-intentioned friends and loved ones who, who want to be helpful, but they also don't want to hear about the same problem over and over and over again, especially when they're providing advice in some cases and you're not listening to them. And so, so that's one way that our social relationships can suffer from chatter. Because relationships need to be symbiotic, don't they? They're about give and take. So Absolutely. It, that's why we pay therapists, as you say in the book. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, um, I, I couldn't have said it better myself, what you just described. I, I love that. Um, I, I do talk about that in the book in those terms. So, so yeah, there's, there's an exchange. You talk a little bit to me, uh, you know, and then I share a little bit with you and it goes back and forth. And, and, you know, you've probably been on a date. People who are in the audience have been on dates where all the other person does is talk to themselves. It's not particularly fun to just listen in that way. And so my problem in, in, in dating in the past was that I would spend all my time asking questions because I'm an interviewer by trade. So you, even that, that's not good either. You can go too far in the other direction. Anyway, yeah. we've got to get to number three, go on the number. Oh, we're, we're getting to dating though. I mean, this is getting fun. Um, so, uh, so number three is our physical health. So chatter, you know, it, it, we still have a bias where we think about the mental as separate from the physical, when in fact, the science suggests that that line does not exist, right? Our, our thoughts influence, are, are, are grounded in how our brain works, which influences our body. And chatter can have a really negative, striking negative effects on our health. And here's how. So you've heard the phrase stress kills. That's not so clear, actually, in the following sense. Stress is a good thing. Our ability to have a stress reaction when we encounter a threat, for example, that's really helpful. If there's a threat in my environment, I want to be able to quickly approach or avoid it. No problem from a health perspective, short stress reactions. Stress becomes toxic, truly toxic, when that stress reaction goes up and then it remains chronically elevated over time because we're not built for sustaining that high level stress reaction chronically over time. And so when that happens, there's a wear and tear on our body that 
that accumulates that can lead to things like cardiovascular disease, certain forms of cancer, inflammation. You know, you put in your favorite feared condition, stress has been linked to those conditions. And chatter plays a role in that because what chatter does is it allows you to sustain that stress reaction. It, it acts as fuel, right? So I get rejected by someone. I, I get rejected all the time, right? As an academic, I'm constantly submitting articles and people saying, no, we don't like it. All right. I read the rejection. It's over. I move on. But no, I come home. And then I think about the rejection again. I think about what they said and how I felt. And then I think about it some more and some more. And so what I'm doing is I'm essentially re-experiencing that rejection over and over again. I'm keeping it alive. And that partly explains how, how things like stress can get under the skin and how chatter can play a role in impairing our physical health. So it's a bit quite strange in my case, because I, I don't think I've ever been so consistently stressed and anxious as I have been over the course of the pandemic, to the point where chatter is going, quite intense chatter is going on in my head, probably 95% of most days. Mm. And yet I've somehow, on the outside anyway, maintained my physical strengths. I'm probably physically fitter and stronger than I've ever been through walking and press-ups and stuff. But goodness knows what's going on inside. To take your point about the physical link with chatter and how we feel mentally, and of course the brain is an organ itself, you've done MRI scans, haven't you? You've looked at MRI scans where you've compared the reaction that people have had. Is it to an X that they might still have feelings for? And a, and a hot coffee. Just go into that a little bit more because I think it's so interesting. We think yeah. much of the mind as being different from the physical, but as you're suggesting, that I mean, it's all part of the same thing, right? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'll tell you about the study, but I want to preface it by saying, don't judge me for this study. We did this. This is true with the hope of figuring out how to help people cope with chatter. And we had to temporarily make them feel negative to do so. So, okay, now that I've built it up, what, what did we do? So we, we recruited people who had just been dumped, rejected in a serious monogamous relationship. And we brought them to the brain scanner, the fMRI lab. And what we did is we had them do two things while we were scanning their brain activity. First, we showed them a picture of their ex and we asked them to look at the picture. And as they looked at this picture, we asked them to think about how they felt in the precise moment when they were rejected. And so what we're trying to do here is have a really powerful way of reactivating that rejection slash chatter experience. And so we did that on, on the one hand. And on, on, during another task, we, we took a device called a, um, a thermode. And it's a little piece of metal and you put it on people's forearms. And what it does it is it heats up to a hot temperature. Now, to be clear, there's no burning, no lasting scars. It, it very much feels like you're holding a hot cup of coffee without the protective sleeve. And what we wanted to look at is whether at the brain level, is there an overlap in, in neural systems that support the experience of physical pain when people experience rejection and chatter surrounding it? Cultures around the world, interestingly, use the language of physical pain when they describe how they feel when they're rejected. They say things like, oh man, my feelings hurt. Like hurt is something that you say in response to a physical injury. And so we wanted to see if using that language is more than a metaphor when we're experiencing chatter. And then lo and behold, we, we found that there was an overlap between this experience of social and physical pain, which I think helps make the point that 
mind and body are a lot more connected than we, we often describe. Let's get into the tools for trying to ward off the chatter. People can, if they want to cheat, they can jump to the end of your book and they can look at your summary of all the different tools that you use, but then they're looking at them out of context. I want to start actually with the Nadal principle, which you describe in the body of the book. And this is fascinating because this is a guy who's one of the greatest tennis players of all time, but he is troubled quite extensively, it seems, by inner voices, by, by chatter when he takes to the court. And so he has various devices to deal with this. Now, if I looked at that outside context, like without context, I might think, well, hang on, this, is, this seems to me to be a sort of OCD thing. He's got the obsessive bit, the voices going on, and then he's got the compulsive bit, which is these ways of dealing with it. And yet, you don't, I don't think, see that as a manifestation of OCD. But you go on to say that when things get out of control, as we touched on earlier, you can spill into OCD territory. So just describe to us the Nadal principle. Yeah, let me tell you about the principle, and then we could talk about OCD and, uh, at the end. So I find rituals just remarkable, and Nadal's case in particular, fascinating. So he, he once said, what I struggle hardest to do on the tennis court is battle the voices in my head. I find that to be amazing. I mean, mind-blowing in the sense that he's competing against the greatest athletes in the world, and he's not worried about their, their backhand. He's worried about what he's thinking. And so uh, his tool, what he turns to, to to regulate that chatter is uh, he engages in ritual. So if you watch him, when he enters the arena, he always does it in a particular way. He holds one tennis racket as he walks over to his bench. Then he turns to the crowd, unzips his jacket as he's bouncing back and forth on his feet. Then he takes out his two water bottles, one sports drink, one just water, and he positions them on a diagonal to the court. And, and then his ritual, these kinds of rituals that he engaged in continue throughout the match. He twirls his hair in a particular way, pulls his shorts out of his butt before every serve. It, it's, it's quite amusing to watch. But essentially what he's doing, he's using the ritual he's, as a compensatory tool. So oftentimes when we're experiencing chatter, we feel like we don't have control of what's happening in our head. It's the thoughts are, they're out of order. They're pinging all over the place. They're not productive. And what, what rituals do is rituals involve engaging in a very rigid, structured sequence of events. You're, you're doing things in a particular order. And what the science shows is that by ordering the world around us and ourselves, that helps people compensate for the lack of order they feel in their minds. And it, it has a, an anxiolytic effect. It reduces people's anxiety and chatter uh, as a result. So that's one way that rituals can help people. And, you know, on the one hand, I think in popular culture, uh, we often equate rituals with OCD, as, as you were mentioning earlier. But I'd like everyone who's here to think about the prevalence of rituals uh, across cultures and throughout time. Think, for example, about what does your religion prescribe when someone passes away? My guess is that there is likely some type of grieving ritual that one engages in. You see grieving rituals all across the world. Likewise, at another chatter-provoking period of time, the birth of a, of a newborn, there are often birthing rituals that people engage in, right? And what I think that speaks to is how as a society, we've stumbled on rituals as a tool to regulate our chatter. 
And we often engage in them without even knowing it. When I was writing this book, there would be moments of chatter. Oh my God, the words aren't coming out right. I have a deadline coming up. And what did I do? Something extremely unusual for me. I went to the kitchen and I would do all the dishes and I'd clean them and I'd put them away nicely. And then I'd scrub the table. I say unusual because I'm a bit of a free free spirit under normal circumstances. There are stacks of books and papers all over the place. Something inside me was beckoning me to do it. And I felt better as a result. What I think the science tells us is that now that we know how rituals work, that that's a tool that you can use if you want to when you're experiencing uh, chatter. You just don't want to let them get out of control, which is what happens in OCD. So that's a case of taking an otherwise adaptive tool and, and using it to an extreme. And by, by way of analogy, a hammer can be the source of enormous creativity, right? But also destruction if you use it the wrong way. So we need to know how to use these tools. I bet your wife can't wait for you to write your next book so you do more of the dishes. Well, you know, that is one element, but there were some other, other things uh, that might lead her, lead her to think otherwise. So Moving swiftly on to other tools. Let's yeah. talk about the, the use of the, the distance self-talk. Distant self-talk. So what that involves is coaching yourself through a problem, like uh, you're talking to someone else, using your own name to do so. So, all right, Ethan, what are we going to do to handle this? Ethan, you, the second person. I'm so fascinated by this because like these rituals, the superstitions, talking to yourself, calling yourself a name, like these in stereotypical terms are the hallmarks of sort of mental disease or mental unwellness. And yet you're describing them as ways that we can actually gain control in our mind. Yeah. Well, I think one thing to think about is whether the manifestations in certain forms of psychopathology are taking tools that are otherwise useful to an extreme, right? So when people are suffering, they look for help. And, and one interpretation is that you're relying on tools that might be useful in certain you know, small doses, but taking them too far. But let me tell you more about what distance self-talk does first before why it works and how it works before we go, go to that. So first of all, distance self-talk, you, you see this popping up all over the place. Julius Caesar did this. Henry Adams, the American statesman, um, LeBron James or Malawa Yousafzai. So, so there's actually a great anecdote with Malawa Yousafzai, youngest person to ever win the Nobel Peace Prize. The story is probably familiar to most people who are here. She, as a young girl, she was an advocate for, for girls' rights to edu and education in Pakistan. And the Taliban didn't like that. And they, they threatened to kill her. And they actually tried to assassinate her while she was on a school bus driving home one day. Uh, an assassin boarded the, the bus and shot her in the face. And she went on to recover. She won the prize. And she went on a talk show in the States around the time that she won the prize. And the host asked her, what I would have asked her if I could have asked her, he said, what went through your head when you found out that the Taliban were coming to kill you? And then she said, she narrated the experience. She said, you know, I used to think, well, I used to think, what, what, what would I do if the Taliban would come? But then I used to think, I used to say to myself, what would you do, Malawa? And then I would answer myself, Malawa, just take a shoe and hit him. So she, she talks about like the most stressful experience anyone could imagine right? Someone coming to kill you. And then the moment that situation presents itself, she switches into talking to herself like she was someone else. We know that it is much easier for us to give advice to others 
than to follow that advice ourselves. There's a name for this. We call it Solomon's Paradox, named after the Bible's King Solomon, who was famous for giving advice to others, but you know, struggled endlessly with his myriad concubines that ruined his kingdom, essentially. What we've learned is that language provides us with a tool for thinking about ourselves like we were another person. And when we do that, we gain objectivity and distance, right? Think about when do you use a name? You use a name most of the time when you're thinking about and referring to another person. So when you use that part of speech to refer to yourself, it's like a psychological jujitsu move. It changes the way you think about yourself in ways that give you some objectivity and make it easier to coach yourself through a problem objectively. And linked to that then is the idea of imagining yourself advising a friend. Yes, yes. This is a way to, so those are certainly related. Um, And I think language is a vehicle to help you adopt that type of mindset relatively effortlessly. So we've done neuroimaging studies with this and we find that it's really easy to shift perspectives the words we use can shift our perspectives very, very quickly. And that's, I think, part of why these linguistic shifts and distant self-talk can be so powerful. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Another tool is broadening your perspective. Yeah. So broadening your perspective, there are lots of ways you could do this that I talk about in Chatter. One way that I personally rely on uh, and have relied on with COVID is something called temporal distancing or mental time travel. So when, when we're struggling with chatter, chatter zooms us in narrowly on the problem, right? We're really hyper-focused on it. And so broadening can be often useful. You know, I can, I can fixate on COVID and how awful the situation is right now. I could do that like the best of them. When that happens, what I do is I, I take a little trip in time and I think to myself, how am I going to feel nine months, 18 months from now when the pandemic ends? Right. And what, and what, and I think about traveling again and restaurants and hugging and all those fun things. When I do that, when I engage in that form of mental time travel, what that does is it makes it clear to me that as awful as what I'm experiencing is right now, it's temporary. It's not stable. Right. And that gives me hope. And we know that hope can be a very powerful experience for squashing and quelling chatter. So I travel in time in the future to broaden my perspective. I also go back in time. I think to myself, well, this is not the first pandemic our species has ever faced, right? About a hundred years ago, we had the pandemic of 1918. It was arguably worse than what we're experiencing now. Like medicine wasn't as good. Technology wasn't as good. And guess what? We made it through that. We made it through that because we're, we're here right now. And that also helps broaden my perspective in ways that can be really, really, uh, at least for me, quite, quite useful. These are ways of taking the toxicity out of it, the intensity out of that moment. Yeah. You feel trapped in your head and you, you can't find a, an obvious way out of those thoughts. 
you're yeah. looking back and you're reminding yourself you've been through tough things in the past, or you're looking forward because you're thinking in all likelihood, partly because you've come through them in the past, yeah. there's going to be a day when you can breathe again. You can feel that relief returning to you. Yeah, these are they're small shifts, and these small shifts take the edge off, and they bring the temperature down. And I think that's what is often really useful, right? It's not eliminating worry and anxiety. It's not saying things are hunky-dory right now, you know, like let's have a party in the house and whatever. It's saying, all right, situation is objectively pretty crappy, but we're going to get through it. Let's talk about then the reinterpretation of your body's chatter response. Because again, I think this might be interpreted differently depending on what sort of chat is going on. So your body's response to a big tennis match yeah. or a big interview or an important date or whatever it is, right? These things, these, your, your body will sometimes manifest that. You'll feel it as nerves, right? So then you, you want us to tell ourselves that this is kind of natural. This is what we should expect. And it might give us that edge to perform in ways that we want to perform, right? Yeah. On the other hand, you're suffering from irrational anxiety and, and part of your brain is malfunctioning. Well, and so you need to recognize that these might be signs of that anxiety and you need to wait for them to calm down. You're not kind of celebrating the existence of them. You're recognizing them and saying, hang on, don't necessarily act immediately because of them. Now, I'm not a mental health expert, but I'm, I'm, all I'm doing here is pointing out that your advice in this book is perhaps more more useful for the general population rather than necessarily always for people who are suffering from specific mental Yeah. Well, and you know, I, and I, I think I say this in the book, um, and I think it's an important point for people to to come away with. I wrote this book, so the 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 bulk of the research that I talk about in the book is based on unselected samples of normal, healthy individuals. And that's a technical language. But what it means is I'm not focusing in specifically on people with clinical levels of anxiety and depression and anger dysregulation. I'm, I'm talking about people who have problems of living, which are all people. And chatter plays into that. And when that occurs, what can we do? Some of the tools that I do talk about in the book there is some data suggesting that they can be useful for certain clinical groups, but there's a whole lot more work that we need to do in order to validate those tools in those specific populations. So, so you know, I think it's a, a, an important disclaimer for anyone who's here and who's thinking about uh, reading it. This is about, this is a book in my mind about human nature, not in particular offshoots of it that, um, so tell us about reinterpreting your body's chatter then. So, right. So, so I forgot about the, 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 <laughs> that question. So when we're facing stressors, there are two questions we often ask ourselves. And we often do this subconsciously. What's required of me? And can I deal with it? And if you answer the, if you ask yourself those questions and answer it, scan the situation, nope, can't handle it. That elicits a threat response, which tends to be counterproductive for our health and performance. If on the other hand, you interpret the situation as, yeah, I can manage this, that elicits a challenge response, which is still a, an, a physically activating response. Your blood is still pumping, you know, your, your adrenaline's up, but it's a more proactive, functional way of thinking about the situation in that context. And so there are some really neat studies which show that when people are experiencing bodily symptoms of stress, butterflies in their stomach, sweaty palms, 
we can interpret those symptoms in different ways. We can interpret those symptoms as signs of threat. Oh no, I can't do it. My body's telling me I can't manage this. Or we can interpret it differently. I'm just rising to the occasion. This is a natural response that I experience when I'm in a situation that is challenging, I'm using that term. And so this is a sign that I'm ready to go. And it turns out that those different ways of framing your bodily symptoms can make a difference for how you subsequently perform on difficult tasks. And so in those instances, I think that can be quite useful. Rather like trying, trying not to worry about worrying, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can imagine the spiral where you start worrying, you've got the physical symptoms, and then you start worrying about the physical symptoms and the worry, and it keeps on spinning and cycling. I want to come to the involvement of others, because that's an important part of this book. But just briefly on, on, on reframing your experience, your sort of, your, your, your chatter-inducing experience as a challenge. Well, reframing your, your chatter experience as a challenge, I mean, there the idea is you're trying to shift from I can't handle this to I can handle this. Now, that is for anyone who has experienced chatter, which I'm assuming is most people, the, the faceless faces that, that I can't see that are here. Yeah, hello, everybody. We're very happy you're here. We'd rather be on stage with you guys in the audience, but it's great to have you with us. Would much prefer to be seeing seeing all of you. Um, so easier said than done, right? It's like, okay, be happy. <laughs> you know, I mean, like we know a lot of people when they're experiencing chatter, they don't want to be experiencing chatter. They want to be happier. They have trouble doing that. And that's where the distancing, I think, can be really useful. And in fact, what we see in studies is that when you step back using language as just one example, that makes it easier for us to reframe our chatter experience as a challenge rather than a threat. So there are other tools that you use in that section about self-help, as it were, you know, using tools on your own. But, but let's now move on to just for time reasons, for, for, to involving other people. Oh, we're, we're, we're cruising. And, and there, are loads of Q, there are loads of questions from the Q&A, which I want to involve as well. So addressing mm. other people's emotional, but also cognitive needs. Now, other people can have a role in helping us with our chatter. And again, when you get into the mental health area, one probably wants to be careful not, not to get the balance wrong and so forth. That's not me speaking as an expert, but it's just another sort of caveat. But when you are helping someone with their emotional and cognitive needs, describe that a bit. So, so first of all, when we experience chatter, there's a lot of great research which shows that we are highly motivated to share our emotions with other people. So we experience strong emotions. We want to often talk about those experiences with a few exceptions, like experiences of shame and embarrassment and also trauma. We tend to avoid those, but all others, we want to share them. And what we're looking for in other people when we confront them is we're trying to satisfy two needs that we have. The first are emotional needs. So we want to know that there's someone there we can express ourselves to. It's nice to know that there's someone who cares enough about me that they're willing to listen to what I'm feeling and experiencing. They're willing to put their hand on my shoulder if it's appropriate in the right context and tell me, you know, it's, it's, I care for you and let, I want to hear you. That's validating. And that can be really useful. And that makes us feel more connected, right? So when we share our emotions, when we talk about what happens and someone listens, we feel connected with them. That's a good thing. But we have a second need, and this often isn't on everyone's radar. We don't just need to talk about what we felt. We also try to 
problem solve that experience. If we're stuck ruminating about the event, experiencing chatter, we need to get that perspective broadening. Some, we need help from other people who are often in an ideal position to help us think through the problem, come up with a solution. But other people don't always do that for us. Some other people just keep on getting us to talk about what, what we're feeling, just, just getting us to vent. And, and that can make us feel more connected, but it doesn't help us solve the problem. So the ideal is when you share emotions, but then the person you're talking to gently nudges you to, to reframe it. So maybe, you know, Matthew, you know, you had a difficult time with the last author you interviewed and, and maybe, you know, so, well, you probably had other crappy times. How did you get over those other ones? Right. So I'm shifting you there. I'm nudging you to, to think a little bit more broadly, right. About maybe you experienced something like this before you got through it. Maybe I tell you, you know what, I've been in that situation before. Here's how I dealt with it. That's another way that I'm trying to help you work through the problem. And so you typically want to do both of those things. None, none, none of this can help me dealing with you. I mean, you're such a tricky customer. I'm sorry. I've, 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 heard, I've heard this before, Matthew. So, I've got a couple, a couple more quick questions on involving others. You, you touched on it already. Touch. Fascinating piece in The Guardian, actually, over the last couple of days about how difficult it's been for so many people in isolation over the last 10, 11 months. People living on their own. Just the absence of human touch. And you talk about touch as an important way of involving others in helping to reduce the chatter. Yeah. And I'll tell you, you know, I was writing this, this book and researching this chapter on touch amidst the Me Too movement, which, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing has penetrated UK culture as well. But it is- you, there's quite a bit of parenthesis going on. Touch affectionately, but respect. <laughs> you bet. You bet. Uh, this, was foremost, this was foremost on everyone's mind. But... And, and actually, I think there are some interesting questions that have come up now because from the science point of view, affectionate touch is a powerful tool for helping others. And there are two pathways through which it works. There's a, what we call a, an automatic bottom-up pathway. So if I put my, you know, if we were together, I might, with your permission, put my hand on your shoulder and rub it. And when I do that, you don't take it the wrong way. There are receptors on your skin which are coding that embrace in ways that are eliciting chemicals, feel-good chemicals, oxytocin, that, that are useful for improving your mood and so forth. There's also a cognitive pathway. When someone comes over and gives me a hug, and it's a welcome hug, not a creepy one, like I think to myself, oh, this person cares about me. And that provides some comfort too. So touch can be really useful. It's tricky nowadays because... Um, it's hard to know how to wield that tool. You know, if, a, if an employee loses someone they love, do you give them a hug? Do you ask permission? It's a little dicey, but for close relationships, it's one that I'd advocate. Can I just quickly ask you, may I ask you about placebo? In, yeah. In the context of other people supporting you, but also more generally in the context of chatter, just briefly. Placebos, I think, are just, you know, fascinating. And the idea is that they're, throughout, throughout time, we've relied on them. We, don't, we haven't necessarily called them placebos. We've called them lucky charms and superstitions. Uh, but there's a, a tremendous amount of data showing that simply believing that consuming an object or engaging in a certain kind of behavior is going to make you feel better actually brings about that effect. And that's true for certain kinds of negative emotional states like 
chatter and, and, and depression. There's data showing that placebos can be useful for helping people manage these kinds of conditions. And what it speaks to in my mind is the power of the mind to control ourselves and the difficulty that we have harnessing that capacity. We all, I think we all know that it's really hard to just tell ourselves, okay, less anxiety, done. Like we can't just do that. There are, there are maneuvers that we have to engage in in order to harness the capacity of the mind. And placebos are, are one back door, so to speak, that we've, we've stumbled on to help us do it. When there's an object that we think is going to make us feel better or a practice, it, it bypasses some of the safeguards, the, the feelings of insecurity and self-doubt that sometimes get in the way of us volitionally controlling how we feel. So tools for receiving chatter support involve building a board of advisors. We've sort of touched on that a bit. Seeking out physical contact, though not unlawfully in the pandemic. Looking at a photo of a loved one is interesting. I won't go into detail of that now because I think we can leave that to the book. Performing ritual, a ritual with others. So, you know, a pre-match huddle, for example, before you go into a sporting event. Minimizing passive social media usage but also the social so using social media to gain support and again i think people can can read about that in the book i, I want to skip before we now go to the q a to tools that involve the environment which is fascinating as well so creating order in your environment I and mean, we've touched on that already haven't we because of the, yeah. of the nadal thing but increasing your exposure to green spaces i think is really interesting just give us a little bit more on that if you would there's a, there's a wonderful amount of data showing that when we, you know, exposure to green spaces, that's like academic lingo at its best, like, you know, go, go for a walk in the park or the countryside or in a tree-lined street. And what the data show is that when we engage in that behavior, it lets our guard down, which serves this replenishing function. So we talked earlier about how when we're experiencing chatter, it's consuming our attention. And what nature does is it allows ourselves a little bit of a timeout, so to speak, which allows us to restore those limited attentional reserves that we have, which are crucial, which are often crucial to combating chatter. So a lot of great data showing how green space exposure can be useful. Another, I think just fascinating, uh, you know, like science, science is cool, right? So people have discovered that experiencing the emotion of awe can help people combat chatter. We often experience awe from nature. So what's awe? When do we experience it? Awe is the experience we have when we're in the presence of something vast that we have trouble explaining. So a tree that's been there for 200 years or, you know, I experience it when I think about flying. Like at one point we were just figuring out how to start fires and loincloth. And now we know how to blast people off into in a tin can and then land them safely. Mind blower to me. And what we have learned is when we experience awe, that makes our own concerns and ourself feel a whole lot smaller. It leads to something called a shrinking of the self, which we often may not think feeling small is a, is a good thing. But when it comes to our chatter, shrinking the significance of that chatter is a really good thing, right? So if I'm contemplating the billions of stars in the universe my problems feel a little bit smaller about the rejection I just experienced. You see, I find that so interesting because we can both feel intimidated and made to feel insignificant by the magnitude of the 
the universe and by seeing the yeah. stars, we can feel utterly insignificant or it can help us to put into context our troubles. So perhaps when we're feeling stressed, looking at the stars helps. And when we're yeah. feeling at peace, looking at the stars might make us feel vulnerable. Well, I found an excellent point, Matthew. And you're talking about the flip side, which I really just touch on a tiny bit in the book because the focus is really on chatter and stress. But like a lot of the distancing tools that, that I describe, we know that when people are elated and experiencing joy, if we tell them to distance, that brings those positive feelings down. So I often tell people, you know, you don't want to be distancing when you're, you're having fun at the playground with your kids. You want to immerse yourself in that experience, right? So, so no, don't contemplate your tiny significance in the universe when you've just, uh, you know, achieved something great at work. Immerse yourself in that experience. It's when you're experiencing the dark side that you want to strategically shrink that. Final quick question from me about genes and about the piano analogy and where genes fit into all this. You said at one point that you were taught that we are the sum of our experience and our genes. Yeah. How do genes fit into chatter? Uh, so 30 seconds to explain DNA and chatter. Okay, Ethan, no problem. You see, I just did it. I did the distant self-talk. To, uh, that was not rehearsed. That was, spon- that was spontaneous right there. So work on epigenetics, what we've, we used to think genes and environment were in two boxes that didn't touch and they both contributed to who we are, but now we know that they intermingle and certain environments that we navigate, our our experiences in the world can turn genes on and off. They can influence what we call gene expression. And, and that helps explain how our, our experiences in the world how deep they can actually impact us. And so there's some work showing how chatter and experiencing chatter can impact uh, gene expression, turning on certain genes that are involved, for example, in, in inflammation, which we, we are increasingly linking to all sorts of um, negative psychological and physical disorders. Okay, Ethan, I want to throw in some questions from the audience. So anonymous attendee says, do you see gender differences with how chatter shows up? and also how it's best dealt with. So in other words, in, in whether chatter, how chatter shows up, but also how people deal with it. And if so, can you share any insights as to where these differences come from? So there are some, there is some data showing that uh, women uh, are more prone to chatter than men, but um, it's still highly prevalent among men as well. As far as the tools and gender differences and the efficacy of the tools, there's less data that I'm aware of highlighting gender differences in the efficacy of the tools than in the experience of, of chatter. But my encouragement, you know, if you're trying to figure out again, which tools make most sense is, you know, most of these tools are simple tools to use, right? And so, so try them out and see which ones work best for you. Madalena wants to know, presumably picking up on what we were just saying there about genes, how, how does epigenetics fit in with chatter? Well, I think epigenetics really, at least in my mind, it, 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 it's, it's chilling. It raises the stakes in some way if I know that, that this psychological experience that we have is, is, has the potential to turn on uh, a gene response that is pernicious. Uh, that, that helps put in perspective, I think, how significant this state of mind can be. There's also, I should, I should have mentioned before, if, if folks are... Um, familiar with work on, on telomeres, uh, which are the little protective caps at the end of our DNA, which 
begin to unravel as we age and are a marker of cellular aging. One of the things that we know is, is chronic stress, which we've connected with chatter, are, are linked with our telomeres and, and with their degradation. So, um, so that's how the link, that's the link. Here's a question asking whether mental chatter is the same as the inner critic. Aren't inner critics yeah, so, so the experiences that we've had throughout our life? Yeah, so mental chatter, you know, the critic coach is something I think so many people are familiar with. And certainly that's one way that our inner, those are two ways that our inner voice can manifest. But there's a reason I didn't call the book, you know, critic, only inner critic, inner coach, which is chatter can take other forms too, other manifestations. It's not only a critical voice. It can also be a voice that is, you know, riling you up and getting you angry and, and things of that sort. And so, so yeah, the inner critic it overlaps with, with the experience of chatter quite a bit, but, but there's more to it than that. Here's an interesting question from Pearl, who says, thank you, Professor Cross, for the presentation. I'd like to know your view of multilingualism in the inner voices. As you mentioned about distant self-talk, like giving advice to a friend, how about changing the inner speech to a language that you're less fluent in? So Pearl says there have been studies on the differences in emotional arousal and resonance between the first language and languages learnt later in life. Do you think multilingualism could be a tool to help gain control on chatter? That is a good question, isn't it? Pearl, I, 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 wish, I wish I could have had that question when I turned in the first draft of the book, because I had a section on this. I love this question, and I love the research on this topic. And so it's a growing literature, and what it shows is that emotions have less punch when you are thinking about an experience in a second language as opposed to your native language. And so people have actually um, speculated and provided some evidence that when we think about emotional experiences in a second language, we're less emotional, we're more distant, which, which would certainly suggest that switching languages can be another kind of tool, another way of using language to work through chatter-provoking events. So well, great I'm question. Glad, I'm glad Fiona's brought in younger people because something we haven't talked about that you do talk about in the book is what you say sometimes to your children. Don't you encourage them to think of themselves when they're facing a certain challenge? as superheroes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, so one tool that we've, we've, we've done some work with is we call it the Batman effect. And it's how do you take the distant self-talk and make it kid friendly? And there's some research suggesting that asking a child who is struggling with a big emotion to pretend that they're their favorite superhero. All right, pretend you're Batman. What would Batman do? Use Batman's name as you try to tell me that that can be useful. They, they take on that persona, like superheroes, superheroes, they don't get down when they get a little nick on their foot or when they don't get the second cookie, they persevere. So it's distancing themselves from who they are and also helping them take on this other identity. Another thing with children is um, I often, like with my own kids, I'll tell them, all right, well, imagine you're the mommy. What would the mommy say to her kid if her kid were struggling? And, you know, eight times out of 10, that works. The other two times they just roll their eyes, which is why we tend to not do experiments on our kids. Um, there are other complexities that come into play there. But those are two, two tools that, that I talk about uh, in the book. And there's some other data there supporting that. And I, I imagine that these sorts of things can sometimes backfire. I mean, if I walk down through a dangerous neighborhood in New York and 
say to myself, I'm Mike Tyson. Yes. Well, you know, this is all, this is, this goes back to a point that, um, a couple of points. Number one, there are no magic pills. Number two, the usage of these tools is contextualized. You don't want to use a hammer when you're screwing, when you need to screw in a screw, right? We need to think carefully about how forceful to wield the hammer and when to do it. And, and that's, I think, the challenge, again, that we all face when thinking about how to utilize these tools in our lives. But just fit in two more quick questions. So I, I didn't actually ask you this question, which is, do you have any advice, specific phrases for young people who are really worried about their futures in these terrible times that will provide hope and reassurance besides this too will pass? Well, yeah, I think a lot of the different tools that that I talk about would be would be relevant. Um, you know, the, this too shall pass is useful for the like an acute stressor. I mean, I'd have to know more, I guess, about what it is that is driving the, the concern to really give a, a, um, a prescription, but certainly talking to other people who have knowledge about that could be useful for you for broadening your perspective and providing you with realistic, not just, you know, fictionary, but like realistic, um, projections about where things would go. Like that would be something I would advocate talking to mentors, and, and for taking the, you know, bringing down the heat on the chatter, I think a lot of the tools we talked about would be useful. Final question. How do you separate chatter from something that you need to ruminate on further to solve and to move on from? Chatter is when it's becoming, when you're not making progress. You want it, the shorthand that I use, and, you know, it's very sophisticated shorthand here. Chatter is a gerbil on an exercise wheel that keeps on going, but doesn't get anywhere. It is, we want to use introspection as an incredibly valuable tool. You want to be able to turn inward to work through and make progress on problems. You don't want to stop doing that. But when we get stuck, when we find ourselves not progressing, that's when you're experiencing chatter. And that's the cue to do something to get out of that state so you can start introspecting more effectively. Ethan, I think this has been a success because Esther wants to know when your next book is coming out. She wants to read about how to improve her parenting skills. <laughs> I'm getting nervous and I'm experiencing chatter just at the thought of that. Um. It, it's, been it's been great. It's been really, really interesting. And uh, you write very well. You write very neatly. Your book is out. It's available. Chatter is available. You can, you can get it online, I imagine. And when restrictions allow, you can get it in bookshops. Yeah. yeah, you get it, get it wherever books are sold. So um, if you're interested, check it out. And I just want to tell, tell people as well that there's so much, there's so much more to come from How To Academy. If you want to sign up to become a How To Academy Plus person subscriber, you get access, free access once you've paid your subscription to an incredible range of events. So I'd encourage you to do that. And I'll be back tomorrow evening actually talking about listening with Kate Murphy, who's in America as well. So that's kind of connected and overlapping with this event too. You can find me on Twitter. Come and follow me at Matthew Stadman. You can find Ethan on Twitter. Where are you at Twitter? Uh, Ethan Cross on Twitter. Ethan Cross. So there's lots more to come from How to Academy. There's loads more in the book that we didn't touch on, including anecdotes involving LeBron James, who you mentioned, and others. It's a really interesting read. 
thank you so much for joining us this evening, Ethan, and thank you to everybody for, for being part of this. We wish we could see you, but we hope before the end of the year we'll be able to meet face-to-face again. Thank you, everyone. Stay well and stay safe. Thanks, Matt. This week's show starred Ethan Cross and was hosted by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by me and edited by John Doughty. Like many of the episodes since the pandemic began, this show started life as a live stream event. But we can only turn a small number of our live streams into podcasts. So if you want to hear more from leading thinkers like Ethan, take a look at How To Plus, our new all-access subscription pass. You can find out more at howtoacademy.com. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Stay safe and thanks for listening.